it's time for customers who click. Today's guest is a former Googler. He was the first Google AdWords evangelist. And so obviously today's episode is gonna be all about PPC, how you can automate and build out the standard stuff super quickly, freeing up your time to be more creative and add the more human elements to marketing, which really make your brand stand out. Fred Valleys is one of the leading influencers in the pay-per-click search marketing space. He's the CEO of Optimizer, and today he's here to teach how you can get ahead of the competition and stand out in the PPC space. Let's get him on now. Hi, Frederick. Thanks for joining me today. Would you mind just giving a little introduction about yourself, your background, and uh, what you're up to today? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Will. It's great to be here. So, uh, yeah, Fred Valles, Frederick Valles. Uh, most people in the U.S. call me Fred. I was born as Frederick in Belgium. Came to the United States when I was 15. My dad was working at a Silicon Valley company, so I was super excited to move here to the, the Bay Area because this is the place where I thought like all technology that's cool and worth uh, thinking about is being invented. And so I was so super excited to come here. Ended up working at Google as one of their first 500 employees. Was the first Google AdWords evangelist, which means that I was kind of an engineer who could also speak to you know people on the, or speak up on this. So it was a really nice hybrid role. So I did that for a while. And then 10 years ago, I left Google and I started a company called Optimizer. And so we make software to help PPC marketers become more successful and spend less time doing all the stuff they know they uh, they should be doing. Awesome. Sounds great. So where do you see the biggest opportunities for brands at the moment? I guess, particularly D2C or e-commerce brands. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a crazy world we live in these days, right? So, so much has changed. And I think part of the opportunity for D2C lies in the fact that there's be, it's become normal to shop online. And so even if you were sort of a digital holdout, you've been forced to get comfortable with buying stuff online. And so that really, I think, benefits direct to consumer brands. I mean, people who might not have bought a mattress from Casper in the past. Well, what happens if for a bunch of weeks or months, you can't really go into the mattress store and lie on the thing and test it out? Well, okay, you are going to buy it online and it's a good experience. And the next time you buy it online again. So it's just a huge shift in, in that regard. I think the other opportunity is just people are constantly shopping. So if you're not selling mattresses, which is like a once in every, what, seven year purchase, but if you're selling sporting goods or clothes, uh, say you're Nike, right? N- Nike didn't used to be like direct to consumer, but really has shifted towards it in terms of controlling everything on their app. And, and so what do I find myself doing when I'm bored for five minutes while I'm shopping? And there's so much continuing. And, and, and like they, they say that people don't go shopping anymore. But what does that mean, right? People obviously still spend a lot of money. But when they say people don't go shopping anymore, it's that shopping is no longer that event that you do on a Saturday where you go to a store. Now it's like you're literally constantly shopping. And so that's another huge opportunity for any direct-to-consumer brand is like you don't have to wait for that one limited moment in time. You're constantly having the opportunity to sell more. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's really two of the consumer behavior shifts that can really help these brands um, you know, transact more. And then obviously, I think PPC and digital marketing is a huge portion of that because the challenge on the flip side is that uh, as it becomes easier or as the consumer buys more online, obviously, there's new brands. I mean, look at Amazon, like how many like fake brands exist that sell the same stuff everyone else sells. So how do you stand out, right? How do you get a name for yourself? How do you order? How are you the one that's found when the consumer is then maybe going into comparison shopping mode? And how do you do that when... I mean, there's so much competition, but also Google is automating so much that's really not that difficult in a way anymore for you to get up and running with PPC. 
Yeah, so that's a really interesting point you make there. One thing that I'd like to touch on a lot more in, in this episode, obviously, there are things you can do to stand out around your branding, your messaging, your imagery, etc. But like you say, when everyone's kind of got access to the same tools, and it's becoming more and more automated, what are some things you, a brand can do to you know, stand out in, in the PPC space or or get, get get ahead of the competition if everyone is has access to the same tools and it's and like you say it is really easy for anyone to just create an ad account and, and start getting some ads running exactly and so when i say it's become really easy to get that ad account running really the point is that now much more so than five years ago it's totally fine for you to be a novice marketer or not very good at marketing and get your ads up and running on google and google's artificial intelligence and machine learning it's going to do a pretty average job. It's going to it's going to make you be fairly pleased with the results that you get. Now, obviously, if you've been doing marketing professionally for many years and you work at a D2C brand and your whole goal is they have a marketing team, not to be average, but to be better than average, right? So how do you get to that point? So it's the fact that you have to understand that despite all this automation that Google's putting into place, there's still a lot that the humans bring to the equation. And one of the simplest ways to maybe understand this is that people think, well, bidding has become automated. Google now has smart bidding. And if you sell stuff, you're probably doing a maximized conversion value with a target return on ad spend target. Well, some advertisers understand that to mean that you just say, hey, I want to have a thousand percent return on ad spend. That's my target. You put that in and you kind of walk away from that campaign and you think you're done. That's going to be your average marketer, right? Your novice who doesn't have a lot of time to do this, but you as the professional, you will start to understand that there's actually things in the world around you that impact your ability or your willingness to have different returns on ad spend. Or you may understand that there's an externality that's going to confuse the machine learning system. And then, by the way, the machine learning's job in that case is just to predict the average value from each click that's going to come in, right? So what's the value over the click cost? That's return on ad spend. And so here's an example I, I use fairly often, but it's car battery sales. Car battery sales go up dramatically when you see the first frost of the season. And the reason is that car batteries die when it gets cold. So the first time of the year it gets cold, that's likely when a bad battery is going to have to be swapped out. Now, the question is, does Google's machine learning algorithm understand that very specific thing about a very niche kind of product, right? A car battery. They probably don't look at that. If you sell car batteries and you've been doing this for 10 years, well, you've seen this year and year again. Every time the frost hits, you sell more car batteries. So what you do is you go into the system and you say, hey, Google, I'm actually willing to accept a lower return on ad spend. Now, you don't actually want to get a lower return on ad spend, but you know that the machine learning prediction is not going to catch to, onto the fact that it's getting cold. And so it's going to assume everything's normal, but you know you're actually going to sell way more car batteries for the same number of clicks that come in. So you're willing to lower your threshold, and that's going to be made up by that externality. Yeah. And that's how you beat the system, basically. Yeah, I see what you mean. So yeah, it reminds me of Christopher when I had Chris Hahn on from Virgin Pure, which is a water, a filtered water dispenser that you can put in your house and it gives you cold water or hot water. And he said what they found was when there's a period of like a heat wave in the UK, they sell so much more, right? They sell so many more of these products because people want that access to that really cold, nice cold water, right? So it's that, that sort of thing. Another example I've got is, when I worked in gambling, shortly after I started, 
there were some changes to to kind of regulations around how you could run promotions for gambling. So the, the actual mechanics that you were allowed to use. And we adapted really quickly to that, brought our new offers out uh, and got marketing them. And basically the, the chief operating officer said, just spend money, just be super aggressive because we know that we, we can be really aggressive in the market and mop and just mop up while the others are falling behind a little bit and trying to trying to adapt to their own promotions. So while they're being a bit less active and possibly even having to scale back a bit, on our side, we went spend money. Right? We don't care if our, what was it, a cost per acquisition to projected lifetime value ratio, basically you know, return on ad spend kind of. We don't care if that ratio gets worse and, and is worse than our normal uh, threshold for it because we know we're, we're just mopping up. and. Right. Yeah, I, I guess a similar thing happened, right? Google didn't really know that this external thing had happened. And so actually, we weren't really worse off by spending that extra money because we were still bringing in more players. Exactly. We're sort of taking the long view, which Google then often has a really hard time measuring. So they don't equate, uh, put that into the equation. So that makes total sense what you were doing. And then the other point that you sort of made is, the other competitors, they would have figured this out or the machine learning would have eventually said, hey, regulations have changed. It looks like conversion rates are shifting. So let's go and adjust our bids automatically for that. But that's the learning period, right? And you, at the company that you were helping, you knew this was going to change. And so you didn't have to rely on the machine to figure it out when you could already tell the machine, well, this is exactly what's going to happen. So let's go and do it this way, right? And, and that's the human smarts. And there's this great stat from Boston Consulting Group basically studied it in 2019. They said, if you go from manual campaign management to automated campaign management, you're going to typically see 20% uh, improvement in results. But if you layer on top of that, actually the type of stuff that we're talking about, so your human insight on top of the machines, you're going to get another 15%. And that's really meaningful, right? When you work with these big ad budgets, and that's how you really unlevel the playing field and uh, beat your competitors. Yeah, so... It comes back to what you said at the start, right? You don't need to be a good marketer these days in order to get going, get your campaigns set up, but you need to be a good marketer to then be able to adapt to to changes in the market, those ex- external changes that Google doesn't really see or, or can't really adapt for. But you can see it coming and you can say, well, we know that because that's about to happen, this will happen in the market. Demand's going to go up or demand's going to go down, so we can manually adjust accordingly. Exactly. And here's another example. So you remember Peloton was having some major supply chain issues. And Mm -hmm. so obviously they're selling a tremendous number of bikes and threads because gyms are mostly closed, but they can't keep up with the demand. And so now the orders are getting canceled. Automated bidding, it's a little confusing. I mean, what do you do? These were orders that happened, but they didn't actually materialize. So that didn't produce any revenue for you, but it did produce cost. So if you're on a target return on ad spend type system, what it's measuring is not actually what's happening. Now, you could say we actually should tell Google to cancel those conversions so we don't measure them. But then again, that could also be the wrong thing because did they cancel because they were unhappy with the product or did they cancel because they couldn't get it in time? And so these are the types of questions that in this ever faster evolving world um, where everything's so dynamic, like that's what you bring to the table is... What is your business strategy and how do you layer that on top of 
what these machines know, which is much more limited. And how do you make sure that these automations then steer the ship in the right direction when very easily some input that you're giving it could make it think the wrong thing and go and do the wrong thing. Yeah. So how can you kind of better communicate that value to Google? Because yeah, like you say, if it's the company, if the company can't fulfill the orders and so it's cancelling them and therefore just not bringing in the revenue, that's one thing. But if a customer says, no, this product's rubbish, I'm going to return it 30 days later, then you know that's a, that's a different signal because Google's done the right thing. Google's found the right person. I suppose in both cases, right? Google's found the right person, has got you the conversion. And in both cases, you've, I guess, the company has messed up for different reasons. Right. And so it could be that. And I think there's a third category. There's the consumer with a high propensity to return stuff, even if it's good. I mean, so you buy the product in three different sizes and you do this consistently where you buy it in five different colors. And actually some brands, I think it's Alo Yoga, they encourage it. They say, hey, you should just buy it in multiple colors and sizes and just return what doesn't fit. I mean, they ultimately know that that means more sales, right? You are going to keep some of that stuff. But we've seen numbers in, in fashion retail where 70% of stuff bought gets returned. So, and, and that's a really important thing to communicate back to Google because, yes, that does impact your return on that spend. Uh, it impacts your profitability. Now, in fashion, typically you have return windows of what, 30 to 60 days. These days, a lot of times it's 60 days. Yeah. And that just kind of falls within Google's adjustment window. So, there's this system called conversion value adjustment. And basically what you do at the time that the order is generated and you report the conversion to Google, you give it the transaction ID from your system. And then for the next 55 days, you can send that transaction ID back to Google with a restated value. So as that consumer has returned stuff, or maybe as you've identified that consumer is actually having all the signals of a high lifetime value customer, you could boost that value too. So you can go either way with that, but that's how you communicate it back. Now, so you can you kind of you're basically artificially inflating the value of that person to tell Google that this profile, I suppose, right? You know, this profile of this person is high value. So if you see more of these people, put our ads in front of them, and we're and we're willing to spend more money to get them. exactly. Um, and so yeah, the whole point is like teach the machine what is more valuable to you. And so there's this statement going around. PPC these days, which, and I set it up on stage last week, but I said, if you're doing target CPA bidding, you're stupid. Google said target CPA is dead. And obviously there's nothing necessarily wrong with doing target CPA. It's far better than doing manual bidding. But kind of the point is that target CPA misses out on the whole value component. And value is so important because even if all you're doing is lead gen, so you truly, truly care about a cost per acquisition, Well, there's different stages of that lead. There's the person filling out the form, which is the first step, and then they might become marketing qualified, sales qualified, and eventually customer. And so each of these stages, you probably should communicate some value back to Google and say, yeah, actually, the person who wasn't just a lead but became a customer, that is worth more to me than the person who filled out the lead gen form. A lot of companies just stop at that first stage and they say, hey, well, I've got a bunch of leads and each of these leads is 25 bucks and that's good enough. No, you got to go beyond that, right? And then be, yeah. by going beyond, that's when Google can say, hey, listen, we're limited by budget from you as an advertiser and we can buy one more click. That's all we can buy. So then they can go make a decision. Should we buy this click or that click? If they think they're equally valued, 
well, then it's a coin flip. But if they know this one has a higher propensity of actually turning into a sale, then yeah, they'll spend money on this one and buy you the lead that actually turns into business and profits. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I, I mean, I don't do acquisition marketing, so I don't really know about this sort of stuff. So uh, it, it makes sense to me. But yeah, that's really interesting about the values. I actually had a chat with, oh, I can't remember his name, Mike someone. It was an early podcast, actually. So, But he had this thing about the profit curve where, yeah, if you, I guess if you set that CPA value, target CPA of £100, right, you're, you're going to hit a limit. Whereas if you're doing it on value-based, you're saying, I'm okay to spend £150 acquiring someone if I think they're going to be worth X amount of money. So that £150 person might be as profitable as the £100 person because that audience, that profile that fits the type of person who's going to cost you £100, £150 is going to spend a bit more money. Right? And I think if you equate it then to D2C, it's really about, we could say that someone bought a bunch of stuff and returned a portion of that. So what is left, that's kind of the value that we drove. But no, I mean, is, is that customer going to buy from you again and again? And so that's the type of thing that usually takes more than 60 days or more than the 55 days that Google lets you restate these values, right? But you can start looking inside your customer database and, and figuring out, oh, well, people who bought socks, okay, for some reason, they're highly likely to become repeat customers because people buy fresh socks every six months or whatever, right? And this is completely made up. But you look yeah. at your database and you start to figure out what is the signal based on what you know about customers' behavior that's likely going to lead to these higher values. And so before your 55-day window closes from Google to restate the value, you do that analysis, you run the correlation, you run the statistics, and then you send a signal back to Google that says, okay, well, Again, all things considered equal, here's the type of customer that I think is higher value because they're probably going to buy more over their lifetime. Yeah, it's a bit like um, RFM models, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're doing the assessment in your own database to say these people have bought recently, they buy a lot and they spend a lot of money. Also, they buy frequently and they spend a lot of money. But you can also, yeah, look at things like people who whose first purchase is a pair of socks or a pack of socks and they don't use a welcome offer, those people tend to end up in our highest tier of customers. So for people who do that, send to Google and say, this person is going to be a high value customer. Yeah. Whereas you might find that someone who spends 500 pounds on their first shop with the welcome offer, 10% off your first purchase, whatever, those are the sort of people who actually don't come back. Because actually they're spending whatever it might be, whatever, right? It could be they actually spend a bit too much money. They don't like a couple of the products and think, oh, actually, this isn't really for me, so I'm not going to come back. So actually, this person who initially looks incredibly valuable, you kind of work out through your own analysis that actually it's likely that this person is, is no longer going to be a customer. So so fire through to Google and say no. But also you have that return data as well, hopefully, so... Yeah, so another interesting thing you said in there is really about the tiering, right? And I think a lot of brands, they just, they get stuck on the lack of precision. And when you tell them, hey, you should go and do conversion adjustments, they don't because they, they can't figure out exactly what is that lifetime value. But even if you do what you suggested, which is, well, put it in two different tiers, like high likelihood of, of high value versus lower likelihood, <clears throat> that's already going to give you a huge benefit. 
yeah, people try and create all these different segments, little groups. And actually, yeah, you should be saying low, medium, high, and just trying to come up with a broad categorization, right? Like we were saying, if you know that people who buy socks as their first purchase become high value customers, then start putting everyone who buys socks in that category. And then if you know that people who make a minimum order for free shipping and use the discount code and maybe even contact customer service at some point, and those people tend to be low value customers, start lumping people into there and then just develop it over time, right? And that's, exactly. that's another it's, thing. It's a starting point and you iterate on yeah. it. And Google has this other great thing, which they recently introduced, which is called value rules. And so in, in, in the world of restating values, you have OCI, offline conversion import, which is usually used uh, for lead gen. And then you have conversion value adjust, which is usually used for D2C and e-commerce. And then you have this new thing, which is value rules. And if you can't do one of the former two, but you still kind of want to steer Google one way or another, you can basically say based on geography or audience or device type, if a conversion has any of these three elements or a combination of two elements, then I want to adjust it up, say, by 10%. So a really simple thing that I could do is I could look across my, my customer database and I could say, hey, customers in California tend to have higher lifetime value than those in New York. Now, I don't want to work with my tech team to restate all of these conversions as they happen, but I'll just tell Google that every time I sell $100 worth of stuff to California, versus New York, while well, boost up the California value by 10%. And you can iterate on that too. So you can start with 10%, but then as you start to get more clarity, or maybe it's like it's the combination of California plus someone who's on a certain audience list. Now you give that 15% boost. And so we, we've kind of gamified it a little bit in our optimizer tool, where we just tell you, hey, did you know you get a lot of customers from San Francisco? They get a lot of customers from Portland relative to each other. Like, which one do you prefer? And, and so as you answer a lot of these questions, we build up a thing that says, okay, well, here's the value rules that we should set within Google to give you a starting point. And then you can actually ask your team to go through that same process. So now it's not just me making a judgment about San Francisco versus Portland, but everyone else on my team is being asked that same question. And, and if we tend to be consistent, then that San Francisco signal is going to become stronger and stronger. Whereas if we say different things, then that signal is kind of going to go away. But I think that's a really neat way to, to really start thinking about adjusting values. And that's really fundamentally what we're talking about here too, which is how do you unlevel the playing field? And uh, when everybody's using automated bidding, well, how do you set yourself apart? And this is exactly one of the ways you can do it. Yeah, exactly. Again, it's like what you said before, right? The You've got your marketers who are running running ads and campaigns and then you've got people who are not marketers they are platform people right they know how to execute ppc ads they know how to execute facebook ads but they're not marketers right and, you, and we see it a lot here in the uk it tends to be people graduate they go work to, go work for an agency they get trained how to execute on the platform mm-hmm. they don't really get trained what it means and why these things are happening so yeah, if, if you're doing exactly what you're what you're suggesting and saying, well, where are you seeing your most valuable customers, or what behaviors do they do they show on your website? How do we tell Google that we should place more value on these people? And then you're yeah, you're going to perform better than the people who basically set up the campaigns and leave them. Yeah, 
Exactly, because Google is starting to handle all that level of detail, which is the implementation specialist, like you were saying, in the first book that I wrote. So it's the one right there, Digital Marketing in an AI World. I basically have a whole section about how it scares me that if you hire a marketer who's just fresh out of college these days, and you ask them, well, how is how does Google calculate the cost per click bid if you have a cost per acquisition target? Like It's not particularly complex, but if you've never had to think about setting a manual CPC bid and you've always lived in a world where CPA was the thing that you set or return on ad spend, but you don't know what Google then does with it, well, if you don't know, then you can't kind of game the system, then you can't, you won't know why it's going wrong if Google's not doing a good job and you also won't know how to make it do it better for you. Um, and so I think as you hire new team members for yourself, really ask them some of those fundamental questions because a lot of people, I think, just don't have the answer and that's very worrisome. Yeah, it always comes down to the ad copy must be wrong or we must be targeting the right, the wrong keywords. Not my fault. <laughs> yeah. System's fault. No, we had this funny thing at Google too. Um, so there was this TGIF meeting. So every Friday... Larry, Sergey, and Eric would get up on stage and then usually one of the other executives and give us a presentation about whatever was going on. And this one week, it was, I think it was Alan Eustace, one of the uh, SVPs. And the presentation was about how everything is Google's problem, right? Because you'd look at search results and you'd say, oh, well, the, the search results weren't good. The, the user didn't find what they were looking for. But then some of the engineers would say, well, <clears throat> they made a typo or they, they did a really strange way of putting the query in the box, or they used a synonym that's like really infrequently used. And Alan Eustace's point was, that is Google's problem, right? If the search results yeah. are not good, like we can't blame the user for that. So we got to fix this. And, and I think, so you're speaking about the PPC specialist saying, oh, it's, it's the ad creatives copies fault, or it's the landing pages fault. But even more so now than before, I think, understanding these externalities, understanding the strategy that needs to inform PPC, like that is now part of the job we need to do. And we can't just blame someone else if that wasn't correctly done or wasn't correctly in place. Yeah. So how do you think marketers need to rethink like the assumptions they make about different campaign types and how can you test them? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to assumptions, I think the modern landscape has really changed a few things. The, the one that's most striking to me is responsive search ads versus expanded text. And most of you are probably familiar quite a bit with PPC, but for those of you maybe working more on social, so RSA is responsive search ad. That means that instead of you writing a fully qualified ad with a headline and some descriptions, you give Google components. So you give them 15 headlines to choose from and four descriptions to choose from. And then Google combines that in any way they see fit based on what they think is going to be the most relevant for that specific searcher, um, right? So, and ETAs were the, the static ads. Now, when it comes to ad testing, a lot of PPC specialists, that's been a big part of their role is they do A-B testing to continuously improve the conversion rate of those ads. And, and usually you look at a metric like the number of conversions per impression, and that's how you choose your winning ad. Now, that methodology is based on the assumption that impressions for an ad group are static. <clears throat> what that means is you have keywords in the ad group and those keywords determine how many times your ad could possibly be shown. And that used to be true up until RSAs were introduced, responsive search ads. But now, because of responsive search ads, Google is actually able to show the ads much more often. 
because they can boost the ad rank, they can get a higher quality score. So a search for which in the past, Google's quality score would have said, well, your ad's not really good enough. Nobody's going to click on that. Now the machine recombines the ad and all of a sudden it is good enough. So you get that impression. When we looked at the data, we see that responsive search ads through a combination of having these higher ad ranks and better quality scores and a combination of Google just preferring them, uh, they get four times as many impressions as an ETA in the same situation. So if you're purely looking at conversions per impression and ignoring the fact that one ad is going to get four times as many impressions, you're not really answering the right question. So you might say, oh, the old ad has better performance because it gets more conversions every time it's shown. Yes, but the, the, the new ad gets shown four times as often. So even if it's 20% worse in terms of turning those impressions into conversions, it's still going to get you dramatically more conversions. Yeah. So these are the types of assumptions that really you, you can't stand by them. You have to evaluate them. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I suppose it comes down to that experience and, and un- understanding. I'll bite you in the behind a little bit here, right? Because you could be like, well, we've done it for this way for 20 years. So why change it now? But I think periodically you just have to challenge those assumptions and, and look more broadly at all of the data. Because I mean, honestly, I knew it was wrong to compare an RSA to an ETA, but my assumption was more it's wrong because, I mean, they're really different ad format, right? But I never looked at the impression data until we ran this new big study. And I said, let's get all the data. And then I started seeing some, and then, and then I actually saw that the new ad format has worse metrics based on the historical things we used to look at compared to the legacy ads. And then I was like, well, but then why does Google push it so hard? Why do they keep saying these are actually better? And we knew about the incrementality story, but then we actually unpeeled that and unpacked that a little bit more. And that's when it became very clear that there was like this huge dramatic shift in validating the old assumptions. And so that's really what, that's where the young blood is probably going to ask those questions the right way. So it's almost, you have to have that mix of the experience to know how to measure things, but also like challenge the old assumptions. Yeah, just keep asking why, right? Just exactly. If you if you think something's a little off, or if you're just unsure on something, just keep thinking: Why is it happening like this? Why are we being told this? And then eventually, you'll get you should get to the answer, which yeah. will then yeah explain it all for you. So, what other challenges are brands facing maybe over the next year? What what sort of challenges do you see coming up in in PPC? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's keeping me busy these days is. Google's continuous shift of campaign types. So now they've introduced the Performance Max campaign, which is going to replace local campaigns as well as smart shopping campaigns. And then there's kind of this undercurrent in the industry where people are wondering, well, which campaign type is next? Uh, And Performance Max is a highly automated campaign with very few inputs and even less outputs and like little settings that you can tweak. So it is a bit concerning for those professional advertisers who do want to unlevel the playing field and, and do some of the things that we've talked about. Now, the good news is that the, uh, the shopping campaign is going to continue to exist for at least a while. And obviously there's shopping campaign and smart shopping is really the one, if you don't know what you're doing in shopping, you just set it up and Google handles it for you. If you know what you're doing, you want to have specific structures, you want to have different targets on uh, different T-ROAS based on different margins that you may, might have, all of that you can do with regular shopping campaigns. 
But I think just figuring out how are things moving around, like what campaign type do I now need to shift to and which ones of these are actually incremental and which ones cannibalize each other. There's a lot of like interaction between things that is just going to take a lot of time to figure out. Okay. Yeah, that sounds sounds interesting. Sounds like it's going to be, a, yeah, an interesting year for PPC marketers. And exactly. fortunately, and I'd rather be spending time on other so. stuff, to be honest. I mean, this is not the most fun like, like you said, right? I mean, we should be marketers. We shouldn't have to figure out. Like I call these PPC doctors. So one of the human roles that you bring to make automation better is being the PPC doctor. Doctors, when they prescribe medication, they they ask about interactions, right? So they're not going to tell you to combine things that don't really work well. I figure that's a big part of what we're going to be doing over the next year. Again, I'd rather spend my time on strategy, figuring out like how to connect the landing page better with the offer, with the, the keywords that we're buying. But the reality yeah. is to do this other stuff too. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, unless there's anything else you want to add about PPC, I've just got a couple of other questions. So, yeah, no, I mean, ask away. I, I could I talk for it. hours and hours about PPC. Uh, so fair enough. We can't talk for that long this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it just it, is there anyone in the marketing space you'd want to go for lunch with or anyone at a particular brand? Yeah. So, I mean, I was super fortunate to go back to my first US-based conference uh, just last week. I went to HeroConf in Austin. And it was amazing just having lunch with a, a bunch of really smart marketers. At, at this stage where we've all been sequestered or not being able to see people in person for so long, I just encourage anyone to to go have lunch with as many people as you can and get back out there. Right, And, and I think it's I mean, obviously, there are certain brands that uh, have transitioned really well in the D2C type of way. Like, I'm always impressed by Nike, for example, and how they've shifted from selling stuff in many stores to basically cutting off relationships with shoe retailers and saying, we're just going to sell it in the app and in our own stores. I find that fascinating. I'd love to. We work with Adidas, so I have less of those questions. I understand more of what they do. love to talk to someone at Nike. But then, yeah, just I, I think it's a variety of perspectives that's always most useful. And that was one thing too, when I worked at Google, I, I, one of my rules was I never take lunch because I want to go and have lunch and like be in a more casual setting with people. So I no lunch meetings, no lunch at my desk, but actually use that time to interact and get a variety of viewpoints. And as an evangelist, it was also about me having a chance to just spitball what I was thinking. And sometimes people call bullshit. They're like, yeah, that point makes no sense. But I think that's the whole thing, right? Go out there, meet a lot of people, get different viewpoints, test out your hypotheses, see what sticks, what doesn't. And that's going to make you a better person and a better marketer. Yeah, absolutely. I've really, I've had a couple of lunch meetings or lunch networking things, I suppose, since we came out of lockdown, really. And they've been fantastic. It's just been so nice being able to chat to people about marketing in person, P people I've never met before and just yeah, just find out how they feel about things and, and what's going on in their world. Um, exactly. And yeah. I feel like a lot of that stuff you don't really get over Zoom calls. They tend to be a yeah. bit more formal, right? But then once you sit down for a lunch meeting and maybe you have a, a beer or a glass of wine, like things open up a little bit more and it's like, ah, here's how I'm really feeling about how things are going. And that's also when your creativity kicks in and, oh, oh that's a problem for you. Well, this is how we solved it. And it is just, I agree, it's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. That as well. Being, being able to bounce ideas off people and just, I remember something I that annoyed people I worked with actually, but I used to love. Whenever I had a, a problem that, that I was working on, I would go and, and find someone to talk to about it but I would basically just have the conversation with myself. 
So I would explain the problem and then just like, as I'm explaining it, I would come up with the solutions. And the other person barely had to do anything in the conversation, but just, it was just the fact that I was speaking to someone else just helped me get through it. I, I guess it's the way I explained it, right? I explained the problem to them in a certain way that maybe I don't do to myself. Well, I think when you internally explain stuff in your head where you internally give a lecture, like when I give presentations, I always want to be in front of a mirror and make some of the key points verbally because the way you verbally say it versus the way you say it in your head. Yeah. Like you'd be like, oh, wait, yeah, that transition made absolutely no sense. Like in my head, complete sense. When it comes out of my mouth, it's like, what's going on? Also, I think when you're thinking about it, you skip over it a little bit and you're thinking, well, this makes sense to me. So I don't need to fully explain it now. But then when you do, you suddenly you realize it's different or it's not quite how you were thinking about it. But yeah, I suppose the point is go have lunch with people, <laughs> go, exactly. go, go chat to people in, in person. So cool. Just a final thing before we go. Have you got any marketing tools that you would uh, recommend to people? Well, optimizer.com for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but besides promoting my own tool, by the way, we just introduced a, a light version, which is free for smaller advertisers. So anyone who wants to get like a free audit, you can find Optimizer Light. But um, I mean, some of the tools that I'm most passionate about, AdWords scripts or Google Ad scripts nowadays. If you're not familiar with those, it's little pieces of JavaScript code you can put into the Google Ads account and it can automate almost anything you can think of. So and it, it, it was incredibly valuable in the old days before Google was automating so many things. But uh, but even nowadays, it's still super useful. It just it shifted a little bit how it's useful. So in the past, you might have used it to set cost per click CPC bids manually, right? You don't do bidding anymore, right? Now you do T-ROAS bidding. But you can actually manipulate the T-ROAS based off of external conditions. So that Frost example for car batteries, that's a script that I wrote. It's about 30 lines. So it connects to an external weather API, which is completely free. And then if it finds that the temperature is dipping below a certain point, it will go and change your target return on ad spend for a campaign. And that's it. And I love these things because that frees up my time to think more about the strategy of how the account should be managed as opposed to checking every day, oh, is tomorrow the day when it's going to be cold? Is tomorrow yeah. going to be the day when it's cold? Okay, so that's done. So I'm really super excited about scripts still. And Google is actually upgrading these and they are adding more capabilities to work with smart bidding. So I think they're super great. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that sounds really awesome, actually. So I, I'm guessing with the, your script, it's does it work live as well? So it's not just the fact that you don't have to check each day to see whether tomorrow is going to be the cold day. Is it the case that this script will say, right, now it's below that temperature, so just change the bids now? Yeah. So Google Ad Scripts, you can automate them once per hour. Yeah. So that's a ton of work that can be done. The other script that's still very relevant. And by the way, one thing that we as humans bring to these uh, these machines is, is a monitoring role. So I call that the PPC pilot. You basically look at your instrument gauges when something's going wrong. You should be doing the same in PPC, even if it's automatically managed by Google. The fact is, I can't look at my account 24 times a day, even if during the workday, it's just not going to happen, right? But you can write a little script every single hour, it detects anomalies. So it says, on a typical Wednesday at nine o'clock in the morning, which is like right now, what do we expect in terms of the number of clicks, costs, and impressions? And it looks at it historically for like, say, 32 weeks. 
So it gets an average and it says, hey, it looks like this Wednesday at nine o'clock, it's a bit unusual. Like you got double the clicks of what we expected. Boom, you get an email. Go and look at it, like figure out what happened. Did somebody screw up yeah. the budget or is there something happening in the market? Build your own alerts. Yeah, we used to have that in, the, in when I was in gambling as well. I, I think there were generally quite a few, but the one, one for my team was conversions. So mm-hmm. I, I would get pinged an email and a few other uh, senior people would get pinged an email if the number of conversions on a day was above the average or, or whatever it was set to. And then you just, yeah, you'd go and have a look, see what's going on. Sometimes it was just a campaign that we run, which would just bring in a load of people from the email lists. And, you know, occasionally you'd find some bonus abuse going on, right? So mm-hmm. someone was automating the process of creating hundreds of accounts to then try and get the welcome bonus and, and play through it. So you just, that gets identified, sent to the relevant team to then close the accounts and, and block things. Exactly. And let you focus on the stuff that matters more. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic stuff, Fred. If anyone wants to reach out to you and find out more, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Silicon Valleys. So uh, Silicon and then my last name, V-A-L-A-E-Y-S. And of course, my company, Optimizer. There's no E in Optimizer. So it's O-P-T-M-Y-Z-R.com. Check that out. And uh, yeah, I would love to stay in touch with people through Twitter or through email. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Will. As I'm sure you're aware, it's pretty easy to get set up with PPC these days. You can get your account and campaign set up you know, really quickly and just let Google do its thing. But if you stop there, you're missing out on so much value that Google can't or, or can't currently predict. Fred's car battery example is really great. So you know, Google's AI just doesn't make the connection that colder weather is what causes an increase in demand for the batteries. So you can almost trick it into performing better for you by adding that human level of expertise. Uh, a similar thing came up a few episodes back with Christopher Han at uh, Virgin Pure. They found that when the weather was really hot, people really wanted to buy their products and they could have achieved far better results by anticipating that demand, looking at the weather forecast and preparing their campaigns for it. Uh, one th- final thing I want to add is that from my personal experience, a lot, and, and I do mean a lot, of people running campaigns on AdWords, uh, Bing, Facebook, etc., don't really know what they're doing. You know, they can get an account set up. They know how to, you know, they know how to run the platforms, but they're not marketers. They're just platform specialists. If you can apply marketing expertise as well, you'll have a fantastic advantage. If you want to reach out to Fred, you can find him on LinkedIn. Any other podcast questions, feedback, or guest requests, please send them over to will at customersuclick.com or message me on LinkedIn. Next up, I've got Ryan Rouse joining me to talk about omni-channel marketing and why being pure D2C is just putting limitations on your business. But until then, keep those customers clicking.